Welcome back. My name is Dr. Brian Williams, and this is Lecture 2 of our series entitled Helping Healthcare Become Healthy and Caring. This particular lecture will be broken into two parts, and you'll see it as Lecture 2A and B, and today we'll be covering Lecture A. The question we'll be covering today will be, how does bioethics work? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin with some definitions that may be helpful in your understanding of bioethics. I'd like to begin with the terms morality and ethics. These terms are typically interchanged when you hear about it in a media presentation. In fact, last night I was listening to uh, a, a presentation and they were talking about ethics and they put the two terms together, morality and ethics. And so for most people in the common understanding of these terms, they typically think of them as synonymous and just bring them together when they use a definition. I'd like to break them apart. Definitions of morality that I'd like to introduce to you are the actions that individuals perform to construct themselves, future generations, and society. Let me say it again. Morality I define as the actions that individuals perform to construct themselves, future generations, and society. These are typically informed by principles that people develop and act out. Morality can also be seen as a system of values that construct a community. And so morality is very, very centered around the actions that we do. Ethics is the study of morality. When you have a text called uh, uh, that is talking about moral theory, you will call it an ethics text. One of the very earliest ethics texts is Nicomachean Ethics, written by Aristotle. Again, we don't call it Nicomachean morality. It is always defined as Nicomachean Ethics. This is Aristotle's study of Greek moral virtues. You can also see the term as a code of ethics, a code of the study of the moral structure of an organization. So we call it a code of ethics. Recently, we've been dealing with the Supreme Court and its struggles, and the, the outcome of the struggles will be an adjustment of the code of ethics. And this is a codified, a codified sense of moral expectations. And so a code of ethics is a codified set of moral ethics. And so when we come to the term bioethics, then we first understand that this is the study of moral action surrounding life. Bio, life, ethics, moral actions. And so you see that particular conjunction in the definition bioethics. It's going to be studying life, 
uh, and, and it's going to be studying moral action. And so that's what bioethics means. But bioethics is primarily involved in healthcare. And so we typically see it there, but it should never be limited to healthcare. Bioethics can deal with anything relating to life, life, beginning of life, end of life, all life in between, life, uh, all forms of life, all forms of, uh, of, uh, of, of the, the social construction of life. So bioethics is extraordinarily broad, but it typically is worked out in healthcare. And so bioethics is the philosophy of healthcare. Principles are what we typically structure our moral lives around. And, and the principle is an ideal, ideal moral rec recommendation. Uh, the ancients uh, constructed the term virtue that they used to help accomplish the same thing, an ideal moral rep recommendation. And so our principles that we'll be talking about today and in the future of our lectures will be ideal moral recommendations for those who are involved in the organizations that the principles serve. And so I hope those definitions of morality and ethics, bioethics, and principle help you to begin to understand the language that I'll be using in the course of these lectures. I'd like to define a simple moral principle. We see this on the walls of our elementary schools all across America. Be kind. <coughs> we can also see it as a virtue. And that would be, it takes courage to be kind. There will be settings where you will have to act courageously to be a kind person. And so be kind is, is linked to the ancient structure of the virtues. And the primary virtue that almost always was talked about first was courage. And courage in the ancient setting was necessary for its soldiers to protect its communities. And so courage was essential to protect the, the, the societies that are woven together with individuals. But to be kind takes courage. And so here we see our moral principles, our virtues, our morality is all interwoven. And so principles become belief when successfully acted out. And so a kind person is someone who believes that is, it is necessary for them to be kind. And so that principle uh, of being kind because becomes a belief when person when a person acts kindly and then they are a kind person belief becomes truth with confirmation it works others agree and so the belief that we should be kind becomes truth when our community wants us to be kind and we as an individual in that community act kindly and you are confirmed by others that your acts are kind acts 
and that becomes a truth into your life the moment you share it with someone else and encourage them to be kind. It, it becomes complex when we, we begin to see that to be kind is a problem in a violent setting. You typically cannot be kind and in some settings survive your kindness. And so we have the situation where strangers with guns are rolling into our elementary school and are devastating that little community by killing everyone. And so a complex truth, and now I'm comparing the simple moral principle of be kind with a complex truth. Be kind, except when a stranger enters with a gun and you throw everything at that person. And so our kindness has its limitations. We want people to be kind in most situations, but we want them to be aware that there are some situations that kindness is not the appropriate result. You must react to protect yourself against someone who might harm you uh, egregiously. And so that becomes a complex truth. If, if we were talking uh, in our earlier lecture uh, about about simple truth, uh, simple moral principles, complex truth, but we also introduce the idea of deep truth and what I call symmetrical truth. Deep truth is to defend others and to defend yourself. Wow, we can see that defense of myself is important at all times. But I also recognize that to be kind often means I have to defend others. And I have, a, have to live in a complexity that I have to live out both of those ideas. I have to be kind to myself. I have to be kind to others. I have to defend myself. I have to defend others. And those seems like opposite concepts. Uh, and so uh, they, they, there are times when defending yourself, uh, def defending yourself means you don't defend others. There's times when you defend others and you're not defending yourself. And so you're, you're caught in this conundrum. Uh, and, and a way out of the conundrum is to ask, ask yourself, into which one should I lean? Do I lean into defending myself or do I lean into defending others? And for the, the highly moral person, the one that lives their principles, the ones that engage in complex truth, and the ones that lives and recognizes deep truth, symmetrical truth, they'll lean into defending others, and they'll lean away from themselves. And so here in one screen, we're working out an awful lot of the moral principles that function to help us understand our moral theory. And so now, in this, in this second lecture, we're asking the question, how does bioethics work? And so we've already begun the introduction to bioethics. Uh, we introduced last week our bioethics analysis and example. And if you haven't done that example, I'd encourage you before you continue today that you go back and that you review uh, lectures 1A and 1B. 
so that you understand what we're working on. In fact, that will be necessary as we continue. Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to be working on the bioethics analysis example. And we're going to be working on the case study conversation. Well then, uh, in this lecture, uh, introduce Aristotle uh, and a little more about his Nicomachean ethics and how he introduces the idea of courage. And he introduces the idea of the golden mean. How does the golden mean need to be recovered for a more useful moral practice? And there will be a practical application. We'll be talking about using Aristotle to help in institutional burnout, such as our hospital staff. And at the end of this particular uh, lecture B, we'll be introducing a case study, our second case study, and that will be for our lecture three that is identified here as week three. And that's uh, entitled Burnout. So an introduction, uh, continuing our introduction on bioethics, we ask the question, what must we do to master life technically? Now this is an, uh, uh, an ancient question. It was asked by the, the, the physicians and the scientists who are, were our early professionals. And it was framed by Max Weber. Max Weber is a father of sociology. He's one of the three founders of sociology that, that we study in our universities. And he asked the question, what must we do to master life technically? And this becomes that natural question of the scientist and the physician. And the natural scientist's role is to harvest the answers from that question. And that's mastering life. So because bioethics uh, uh, works with questions around life, bioethics becomes that one that, that then uh, is a companion to this question. Because we must ask who will answer the competing question, should we master life technically? And does it make sense to do so? And so, for every part of the mastery of life, through our scientific knowledge, someone or that original person must, must ask that question, should we? And one of the areas that we're seeing that in our day is artificial intelligence. And we're seeing the incredible possibilities of artificial intelligence. But thankfully, we're also seeing people ask us, should we, should we continue this direction of using artificial intelligence, which will have tremendous uh, consequences into our personal lives and our social lives? And so we're asking those questions. And that's the role of ethics. That's the role of philosophy. That's the role of theology, to ask those questions because the scientist is often driven to answer the questions, come what may. And so the, the ethicist is the person that asks the question, should we continue that? Should we do that tact? And so that's the role of ethics. A bioethicist tries to confront attempts at mastery 
that might degrade the human condition. The key task is to integrate all of these areas and employ principles to propose solutions. And so the bioethicist uh, takes those, those uh, attempts or answers by the physician and the scientist and asks whether we should do it. Now the bioethicist can certainly be the original physician and the scientist naturally asking those questions. But we'll see that often a community is structured on expertise, and the expertise of the physician and the scientist often needs the expertise of the ethicist that will begin to prompt them to make sure they're thinking about the consequences of their action. And often it, it, it is two people, though it certainly might be uh, woven into one person. And so there is where we see that profession, that professional name of the bioethicist. It's one who confronts attempts at mastery that might degrade the human condition. Uh, and so this particular person is responding to artificial intelligence, saying there's a high probability of degrading the human condition because of what's happening with artificial intelligence. How, much, how many workers will lose their jobs? How many, how many uh, uh, situations can we imagine right now where artificial intelligence will hurt humanity? And that conversation is just beginning. It's very vibrant. But it hasn't been so aggressive that it's caused artificial intelligence to stop or even to pause. And so we are moving into this area uh, at full speed. The bioethicist has a task, and that's to integrate all of these areas of the scientist and the physician, uh, uh, of the ethicist and the philosopher and the theologian, and to make sure that they're talking and to give them some principles that will help to propose solutions to the quandary that humanity may find itself in as it works out new technology, such as artificial intelligence. The history of, the, of bioethics, and this is, my goodness, a very, very simplistic uh, history, um, but it, it's important to sort of give us our beginnings and our groundings. And we really like to start at the point of Hippocrates, Many of us assume that our medical schools use the Hippocratic Oath when our physicians uh, are brought into active practice. Uh, and so Hippocrates is best known for the Oath of Hippocrates that we assume is the moral compass uh, of those physicians that will be uh, adjusting life for the benefit of humanity. And Hippo Hippocrates is noted as saying, follow that regimen for the benefit of my, of my patients. Abstain for what is deleterious. And so here we're seeing in Hippocrates that the, the, the concept that will grow into a principle. And we see actually two principles here. We see the, the, the principle here in this first section to follow that regimen for the benefit of my patients. And so the principle will be called beneficence. The benefit of patience is beneficence. It can be shortened to do good for others. Beneficence. The second part of this quote is abstain from what is deleterious. 
don't harm your patients. Do no harm. And so that principle is called non-maleficence. And so here we are, we're being introduced to two principles that are essential for humanity. Do good, do no harm. And so those principles were introduced to us in Hippocrates. To jump now into the 20th century, let me just find my spot here. There we go. Yes. There we go. And so our 20th century, uh, we begin with, with some serious questions. And some of you may remember the first time a, a heart was transplanted into a human being. But the heart wasn't human. It came from an ape. And so that ape's heart was transplanted into a human being. And when this happened, uh, and my memory is somewhere in the 70s, um, that there was tremendous repercussions across every, every media that had access to information. And our newspapers were highlighting with front page uh, articles and headlines about this particular operation. And so because it confronted everything we know about what a human being is in, in one operation, and, and the question became, um, uh, after they, di they did this operation, should they have done it? And so there was really no one who was defined as being the respondent or the, uh, the, the person that offered that question. Well, that was just one of many. Health care, uh, following the Second World War with the discovery of penicillin, uh, was radically changing. And, and the, the hospitals were worried about whether they were moving too quickly for the general community to keep up with them. And so they often, uh, these questions were often done in university towns with university uh, uh, faculty who were the, medic, the, the medical experts and the scientists that were coming up with these particular advances. But also across the street was the philosophy and the theological community. And these were often uh, colleagues to those who were in, in the scientific community. And so uh, two, two individuals that were, were theologians, but also trained in philosophy, that were well known in their fields were those that were across the street. And their names were Paul Ramsey and Joseph Fletcher. Uh, and Paul, Paul Ram, Ramsey is known for ethics texts, and his writing became centered on bioethics. And so he has an awful lot of the early bioethics writing that we, we rested upon as the field of bioethics grew. And Joseph Fletcher was uh, known for his situational ethics, and that created another, another uh, conundrum for those in the 70s and 80s. Is ethics formed in the situation, or is it a broader, 
a broader analysis than that. And so Joseph Fletcher was well known as writing into the, the, uh, the, uh, into the study uh, of morality. Um, and so these were important founders. And so the controversies that we remember really challenged us in the 60s and 70s. There were organ transplants that we've alluded to with the, uh, the, the transplant of an ape heart into a human being. There was kidney dialysis, and we'll talk about that in a moment, with the God Committee. There were respirators that were being developed to help people breathe. And it was the time of the development of the intensive care units as so much of this as we were trying to, to assist those in, in, in who were struggling. And so that differential between a discovery and a community that accepts the, the, uh, the discovery is what we term to be culture lag. Culture lag is the amount of time it takes for a scientist or a physician to do something productive from, in their opinion, into human society, and the time it takes for the society itself to accept that as an appropriate action. And that takes time. Uh, and so society can be caught in a culture lag of new technology and moral interpretation. Our recent vaccines with the, the mRNA vaccine, brand new technology that was introduced into our community. And we saw some that quickly took the vaccine and some that never took the vaccine and may never in their lifetime. And so the, the, the vaccine rejection is a textbook example of culture lag. Culture lag is typically generational, which we have, have typically used the, the, the term 20 years from one generation to the next generation. And it's really the amount of time one generation has children and those children uh, are, are viable and beginning to be productive in their young years. And, and so the role uh, of, of culture lag often is the new generation accepts the technology much quicker than the old generation did. And so that previous generation has lived life successfully. That, that, uh, that new technology may not be, be interpreted as helpful. In fact, they can imagine all of the harms of the new technology. There were many in, uh, in, 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 the old in, in the old generation that have seen the harms of vaccines and have lived through the harms of vaccines and can remember stories of children uh, that were harmed by vaccines. And our media is part of that, uh, that awareness, not only of the new technology of vaccine, but of all the harms of vaccine. And so culture lag typically is, uh, it, it only begins, it, it, is, is overcome when the majority of the community accepts the new technology. Not everyone, but the majority of the community accepts a new technology. And we saw within the, the, the mRNA vaccines a fairly rapid uptake in, uh, in, in the use of the vaccines. 
And we quickly saw about half of the population that took the mRNA vaccine. But that means that half of the population rejected it. And slowly over time, years, it took, uh, it took uh, two, three, four years for us to see those numbers change. Uh, and so that's very quick uh, uh, management of culture lag into this particular scientific technology. And, and so it, that probably deals with the life-threatening possibilities of uh, the, the, the virus that humanity was faced with. And so the pandemic that resulted from that virus forced us to speed up our interpretation of the new technology. And instead of 20 years, we have, we're, we're basically at the point where we have accepted, the majority of people have accepted the technology as more helpful than harmful. And so that means we've, we've, we've overcome the culture lag on mRNA vaccines. Often it will take uh, the previous generation to die before we'll solve cult culture lag. Uh, and so our grandchildren probably won't think anything about mRNA vaccines. Uh, they will probably, the vast majority of them, just take it. But their grandparents might have never taken the vaccine uh, and will not take the vaccine and will die not having taken the vaccine. But they'll be frustrated by their grandchildren that so easily uh, assimilate this particular vaccine and make it a part of their life. And here we're seeing the dynamic of culture lag. Hospitals struggle with culture lag as they are a key site of innovation. And they have to ask the question, how do we manage innovation and culture lag? Well, hospitals have to have ethics board. There's that word again, ethics. And it's defining the moral structure of a hospital. So a hospital has an ethics board that has been the solution for many of our hospitals across the world. And, and what the hospitals are responding to are their standards. And the standard of a hospital under the section called Ethics, Rights, and Responsibility, their standard uh, RI 110. The hospital follows ethical behavior in its care, treatment, and services, and business practices. And that's broken down a little more. Our EP1, the hospital identifies ethical issues and, and issues that are prone to conflict. As well, the hospital develops and, and implements a process to handle these issues when they arrive. Hospital ethics boards are typically chaired by professional bioethicists. So what does that give us? So the hospitals know they will have struggles because they're a site of innovation. They know the community will struggle with their innovations. So they have to set up something that works on these problems to assist with the culture lag that will go on within their community. They'll put to, their task with putting together a committee that will work on these issues, not just the original in, uh, individual that has developed them, 
but a group that will come around those individuals and give them advice and guidance on the consequences of the technology that has been introduced. And they will then uh, form up that committee uh, with professionals that will assist them. And the professional that is often recommended to serve as the chair of the ethics committee is the professional named the bioethicist. And there are professional bioethicists that have structured up these committees. One of the things that uh, you were asked to read is a life article from 1962 called, uh, subtitled called The God Committee. And so here we have a committee that has been structured as a result of an innovation, a dialysis, a kidney dialysis unit that was developed in Seattle. And the hospital that developed it recognized that they had a real problem. Uh, and it wasn't so much the implementation of that. There were so many that, that needed kidney dialysis that they were prepared to try anything because of the shortened life as a result of kidney disease. And so the, uh, the kidney dialysis uh, community uh, had too many patients that wanted to be involved in, uh, in accessing these new machines and they could only handle a few. And so what they did was form a committee of those individuals that were representative of their society and help them to make the judgment who would be, be these first people that would have access to the kidney dialysis machine. And so we began to see a, in the article who they picked that were their key members of society. And that list uh, of those that were key is an important list that represents America in the 1960s and helps us to see who they would have, who would they, they would have selected. And for those of us who are living into the 21st century, we begin to see that there, there are different people that we might have selected in the 21st century for the committee as opposed to those they selected in the middle of the 20th century. And so the first question I'd like to ask is why a committee? Why didn't someone who is responsible for this machine simply uh, create a list and begin helping patients? The recognition was that it would be extraordinarily hard for them to be fair to those that were not selected. And the best way for the hospital to protect themselves was to form a community of experts that could give the best advice on how to structure up those, those individuals. And so those individuals then began to allow uh, patients access to the machine and they lived with the consequences of their decision. And so we can also, also ask, how, how did its members influence this decision? Well, each one of its members has a particular way of living life. They, own uh, they all have their own principles they live by. They all have their own beliefs that they, they act out. They all have their own truth that they live. And that there are disagreements among any committee 
as to their principles, their beliefs, their truths, and, and their complex truths that they all have to encounter. And so when, when you bring people together, you also begin to uncover their differences on how they see life and how life is lived. And so you can ask this, the, the, the question, what strengths did they offer? What weaknesses? And they were people. And so each comes with a strength and they all came from different walks of life. And so you can see in the listing, that by bringing people who are different in the way they see life, you get an, a, a vision on how life is lived from their perspective. Uh, and the weakness might certainly come that each person ha has blind spots that they don't see well. But hopefully in a committee uh, that is well formed, those weaknesses and those blind spots uh, become, uh, become strengths of the committee and you can minimize your weaknesses. We have to ask, uh, how would you have acted? Uh, and we would want for you, if you were a member on that committee, to think about who, who would you have brought uh, into, uh, the, onto the list that they constructed of those first patients? How would you have reacted? So it's an important, important uh, item. And again, if you haven't had a chance to read it, please go to ethics.center, ethics.center. Uh, in your browser and you will discover uh, the Ethics Center uh, of McCall College. And if you'll trail through the hot links that are now available to you, you'll see our uh, Helping Healthcare Become Healthier and, and More Caring hot link and that'll take you to these articles. Feel free to read them. The other thing that was available to you uh, was the case study called Practicing Tough Decisions. You were an RN on an oncology ward of a major urban hospital. You have just finished reading a paper on, the, on a successful vaccine for metastatic breast cancer. The vaccine uses an individual's own tumor-fighting immune cells for treatment. Good efficacy of the vaccine was noted, and also it was noted that it had low side effects. The hospital has been able to acquire two doses of the vaccine. More doses are six months away. There are 20 patients with this cancer who could benefit from the vaccine. The oncologist has ordered the vaccine to be given to the youngest patient and another who is clearly financially well off. Both have insurance. You have a friend with no insurance who was excluded. You have asked for an ethics committee consult. What will you say at the meeting? And so our, 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 our lecture 1B, we introduced this particular case study. And again, a case study is a construction. Uh, there does happen to be uh, a vaccine uh, in the pipeline for metastatic breast cancer. It looks very good, but it's not available yet. So this case study is allowing you the opportunity of thinking through uh, the next vaccine that's come, that, uh, that will have some uh, opportunity of entering into the cancer fight. And so this is a construction, but it's designed to help you work through some similar problems 
that the God Committee had to fight through for kidney dialysis. And so, as we, as we practice tough decisions, we first ask you about your instinctive response. And obviously, you're an individual that, uh, again, uh, has a friend that has been excluded. And so it's designed for you to sort of fight what's going on. Uh, and your instinct might be to fight for those who you think should be helped. You would want to help others. Uh, and so your instinctive response might be that of a, of a friend. Uh, I want to make sure my friend is included in this study. And I think that would be the typical instinctive response. But if you formed up a good, commu uh, a, a, a good community, a good, a good committee uh, of, a, of a hospital or any social institution typically has contrarians. And they might respond differently because there's going to be a consequence to your thought. And you may not think of it quickly. But if you have a contrarian on your community, they're going to quickly introduce to you uh, the, the reality of your instinct. And in this one, the instinct is, if we include your friend for just reasons of your friendship, then we should, we should poll all of the people in, in, on the committee and we'll only allow their friends on it. Does that seem like a, a good result from this? Uh, shouldn't we have a way of, of thinking? Clearly, the oncologist was thinking of, of those that were the youngest. Shouldn't that be the criteria uh, of who we offer this vaccine to? Shouldn't it be the youngest in our midst? Uh, the contrarian would instantly begin to say, well, they, but, but the oldest have, may have the greatest to offer our society. Why should we exclude the oldest that might be more at risk from uh, consequences of metastatic breast cancer uh, and make sure they get some help uh, as this seems to be uh, therapeutic as well as preventive? And so the contrarian would help that person, help the oncologist understand that the youngest to oldest might be a, a, a difficult way of doing it. Uh, a contrarian uh, could think of all sorts of, uh, of ideas. So what we want you to do is to think of the two consequences that you need to consider that result from your instinct. The best thing to do when you're presenting to a committee is let the committee know you've thought about the consequences of your act. If you would like your friend to do it, you probably want to think uh, 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 of some serious reasons why your friend is a viable candidate. Uh, and so you would want to make sure you're including your friend in that particular idea. You'll want to gather any facts. Do you know anything about metastatic breast cancer? You might want to study the disease itself. You might want to study the ways that others uh, have dealt with this situation. And obviously the God Committee uh, article would be an important uh, article for you to read and reread uh, as to how others before you have done it. You would want to study how those kinds of things are, are worked out in various committees. Uh, and so you'll want to work at gathering facts. Uh, you'll also want to think about who the characters are. And so let's, let's identify those. We certainly have the, un, the, uh, the, the oncologist uh, is a primary character. 
uh, that we need to be thoughtful of. They're the expert uh, in this hospital and have offered their expertise for who should get these doses. You have yourself, the RN, that's responding to the decisions of the physician. You have those that have been selected for the vaccine. And if you unselect them, then uh, you're, you, you, are, you are bringing those people into the consideration. So your friend is clearly uh, a character in this. Uh, you have the stakeholders. The company that produced this vaccine is a stakeholder in this decision. They want the best possible candidates using their vaccine. If something goes wrong, that could destroy the vaccine for some time as they reestablish uh, the confidence in their vaccine. You have the entire body of people that are candidates for the vaccine. And so they are a part of the decision. You have the hospital themselves. If something uh, goes well or goes wrong, they are part of the decision. So, uh, so the medical chief, chief of staff, the pharmacy that has to deliver the vaccine, the, uh, the assistants that are involved in the care of the patients, the scientists that will be monitoring the results of this vaccine. So they're all part and partners. And so one of the things we want to do is we want to make sure that the relevant parties are identified. And I like to do it by, by do, saying this is a primary character, this is a secondary character, this is a tertiary character. And we sort of, we highlight those as we're working through difficult decisions. So we understand what their role is and we understand how much weight we should give to each part of the institutions. And then we ask you to develop a key ethical issue. And so a key ethical issue helps you to focus on the key item that you want to solve. We want to frame one key issue that you think is most important as a competing claim against two parties. Should the first party do something or should the second party do something? And so should the, should the, first, should, should the first patients uh, be the ones uh, that receive the vaccine or should the community uh, that is at large, the larger group, should they do something? You, you might want to, to move it from a decision of the oncologist saying, should the oncologist be responsible for developing this list? Or should there be a second committee that is established to develop criteria so that there is a different decision that might become from a different set of criteria? And so you'll want to frame this as one key issue so that the committee is focused and they can work on one thing at a time. You want to begin thinking about the specific tensions. You've obviously got a tension between the, 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 the physician and the nurse, and that's, that's a typical tension in the hospitals. You've got a tension between the individual making a decision and a committee making the decision. You've got the principles. Do we do good to those we've selected? Do we avoid harm uh, to those that haven't been, been selected? Do we work with principles? Do are we, we're working with various rights here, uh, the, the right to life, the right to, to, uh, to uh, receive health care. There's many rights that are considered. When it comes to your plan of action, what are you going to do? Uh, you can't go in front of the committee and just 
uh, and, and, and so you'll want something to change. You'd like for your friend to be established. And so one of the possible plans of action that you might, you might consider about is maybe your research taught you that eventually these committees went to a lottery system. And you might suggest that the lottery system is the best method here. Take all of the members of the cohort that could be selected and pick two names and you live with it. And so the lottery system typically is, is where many people have settled into when it comes to populating a patient group for treatment with limited resources. And so that might be your action plan. I'd like to take a break now. I thank you for staying with us. Uh, we trust you've enjoyed this first part of our lecture and that you will come back when the uh, second part is available. Enjoy the, enjoy the conversation that comes from uh, bioethics. Yeah, and we trust you've enjoyed the introduction to bioethics, the introduction to case studies, the reminder of the various principles, beliefs, truths, and complex truths that are all part of bioethics and how we begin to organize it so we can come to good decisions. Thank you for your time and for uh, being a partner in this particular lecture series. This is the end of Lecture 2, Part A, and we trust that you'll come back when we're able to offer the second half to this lecture on helping healthcare become healthier and caring. Bye-bye now.